First Peter chapter four. If you're newer to your Bible, First Peter is near the near the end of your Bible. You come to Revelation, you've gone too far. Or if you're in the concordance, you've also gone too far. So go to the left a little bit, and uh, eventually you'll come to First Peter. We're continuing our series in this letter. We've got a few more weeks left, and uh, Peter's not done with us yet. So would you uh, read along with me as I read First Peter chapter four, beginning in verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for speaking to us through Your Word. Thank You that Your Word is sufficient, giving us all we need, that it's inerrant, without without error, and infallible. And we we can trust it. It's authoritative for us. And Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to hear your word this morning, to receive your word this morning. Uh, May our lives be conformed to all you have to say to us. Thank you for addressing us through your word. Thank you that we gather here, not what I have to say, but what you have to say. So may may we hear it faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This past Thursday, the bulletin of the atomic scientists sent out a press release. And this is what it said. It is now 100 seconds to midnight. The bulletin of atomic scientists, what they keep track of, is what's known as the doomsday clock. They've been doing this since 1947. And what this clock is meant to say is like how close we are to the world just collapsing. So that's midnight. So it's now 100 seconds to midnight. This is the closest that it's ever been. So here's from the press release. The iconic doomsday clock, symbolizing the gravest perils facing humankind, is now closer to midnight than at any point since its creation in 1947. To underscore the need for action, the time on the doomsday clock is now being expressed in seconds rather than minutes. Today, Thursday, the clock moved from two minutes to midnight to 100 seconds to midnight, a full 20 seconds forward. It goes on to say, the doomsday clock has now moved closer to midnight in three of the last four years. While the doomsday clock did not move in 2019, its minute hand was set forward in 2018 by 30 seconds to two minutes before midnight. The clock was adjusted in 2017 to two and a half minutes to midnight from its previous setting of three minutes to midnight. One of the, uh, the CEO of this organization, she said this, it's 100 seconds to midnight. We are now expressing how close the world is to catastrophe in seconds not hours, or even minutes. It's the closest to doomsday we have ever been in the history of the doomsday clock. We now face a true emergency, an absolutely unacceptable state of world affairs that has eliminated any margin for error or further delay. These are serious people making serious assertions. One of of the uh, members involved in, in determining the time said, if there's ever a time to wake up, it's now. All right, so if you're asleep... Now is the time to wake up. 
another member of this board. She says, we ask world leaders to join us in 2020 as we work to pull humanity back from the brink. The doomsday clock now stands at 100 seconds to midnight, the most dangerous situation that humanity has ever faced. Now is the time to come together, to unite and to act. We have never been closer to the end of the world, which ironically enough is not only the assertion of this press release, it's also the assertion of the Bible. The Bible teaches that history is headed toward certain events. First, it was headed toward the coming of Christ, and now, since his death, resurrection, and ascension, we await his return. When Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts 1, it comes as a completely unexpected event to the disciples. The disciples, they're out there on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, listening to him talk. Now, they've done this many, many times before. The only difference is Jesus has died since then and come back to life. But he's there, and they're talking. And then suddenly, this is what Luke writes, as they were looking on, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine that? And just then, as if things couldn't get more crazy, as the disciples, they're just staring into heaven. I, they don't even know what to say. And these are, Peter, like, Peter's there. He's a man of not a few words. He doesn't know what to say. They're just st- gazing into heaven, dumbfounded. And it gets crazier, because... Two men, as they're looking up, two men in white robes appear next to them. And they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're saying, don't stand here staring into heaven. Jesus is coming back. But he's not just coming back. He's coming back soon. And this is what Scripture attests to. This is how Scripture ends. On the very last page of your Bible, if you flip to the very last page of your Bible, twice Jesus declares this fact. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. His coming is the next event. It's the next big thing. One commentator said it's the the next thing on the program. Jesus is coming back. And our passage this morning begins with this phrase, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. 100 seconds to midnight. But what does this mean for us today? And what does it even mean for the end of all things to be at hand? I was helped by what one one commentator described as how all of human history was running straight towards Christ. Like, just straight towards Christ. But when Christ came, the gospel, instead of running straight towards Christ, now all of human history is running, running right alongside of Christ's second coming. Right along it. Always on the brink of it always close to it. He says this, he says, human history is at all times near the great event, which if it ran towards it, it would at once run into it. Christ then is ever at our door. It's always 100 seconds to midnight. So how do we respond? How should we then live? And this is Peter's primary concern. The fact that it is so close to to midnight, as it were, has shaped the entire outlook of Peter's letter. Peter holds that this idea should shape identity. And so he calls his readers in the first verse of the letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, elect exiles. They are those chosen by God, but they're exiles. They're living in a world that's not their home. They're sojourners, they're travelers, anticipating their true and final destination. So it shapes their identity. 100 seconds to midnight, it affects who you are. 
It also shapes their action, the way they are called to carry themselves and live their life. We've seen it already, but nowhere is it more clear than in our text today. Now, just prior to the verses we just read, verses 7 through 11, Peter has been preparing his hearers for suffering. The suffering that they will face for the sake of Christ. The suffering for righteousness' sake. Elect exiles, they don't don't live for themselves, but follow the will of God. And this comes as a surprise to the world around them. 1 Peter 4, verse 4, look at what it says in, in just a few verses up. With respect to this, they are surprised. The world is surprised. The Gentiles are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They stand against you. But then Peter writes this. He says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This day is coming. It's 100 seconds to midnight. Peter is saying, This judge, he's coming. So don't worry about how the Gentiles live and what they say. And then he quickly moves to claim the claim that this reality makes on believers' lives, on the church. So because the end of all things is at hand, Peter is concerned with how we should live as Christians. And the text makes very clear what we're called to do. There's, there's not a whole lot of nuance to this. And we're going to follow the text and look at two responses to this question. All right, how do we live in light of the end of the world? That's the question. And our two answers are pray and love. It's going to be the two, two headings for this, this sermon. So because the end of it hand, is at hand, we must be a praying people. But it's not just a praying people. It's a people who are disciplined in their prayer. And we see this in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And when the end of all things is at hand, humanity generally has taken one of two options. I'm going to call one the bunker mentality and the other the party mentality. It's kind of the, the two directions people tend to go. Now, the bunker mentality says that the goal is just to survive the end just to make it. The zombie apocalypse is coming, so like, we're doing all the things we need to do to fight that off. So we build bomb shelters. We stock up on canned goods and water. Now as Christians, maybe more seriously, perhaps we pull away from the world around us. It's 100 seconds to midnight. So let's not really interact with non-Christians. Let's not engage society. And let's hole up in our bunker for protection from the chaos of the end of all things. That's the bunker mentality. Or you might take the party mentality. This one is far more prevalent in our society. And it says that the goal is to enjoy every last moment. Now, one generation says carpe diem. Another says YOLO. Which I've been told is just carpe diem for stupid people. (laughs) Just saying. This is the direction most of humanity tends to go to varying degrees. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, he says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So take the party mentality to extreme and I shared this story once before but it's worth repeating one couple was so convinced that the world was going to end in 2012 December 21st 2012 the Mayan apocalypse they were so convinced of this that they later said they almost went bankrupt and had spent 10 million dollars over the course of a few months because the thing is this is them the thing is we heard that the planet was going to end in 2012 and we thought we've got to spend this money before the asteroid hits They went on to offer some words of wisdom, if you want to take their advice. Here's some advice. Definitely do not spend your money thinking asteroids are coming, because the world didn't end. It's pretty wild. I mean, you can go, go, if you want to go down a a rabbit hole, and uh, good luck getting out. 
just Google like the end of the world or predictions for the end of time and it's just amazing how many predictions there have been and uh, how none of them have come true. Now certainly these are extreme descriptions of how to respond to the end of all things, but we can all lean one way or another at different points depending on our circumstances. But Peter doesn't call us to the bunker mentality, and he doesn't call us to the party mentality. He calls us something else. He says this, be self-controlled, meaning be reasonable and sensible. Keep proper perspective on what is right and true and good. And he adds to this, be sober-minded. Now, sober-minded is just the opposite of drunkenness. The debauchery that Peter just wrote about earlier in Galatians 4. So we must stay alert and in control of our thoughts and our emotions. And the reason he combines these two things is for the sake of our prayers. We see that in verse 7. So if we lack self-control and a sober mind, Peter's being very blunt about it, it's going to be very, very hard to pray. But prayer is the normal and expected activity of the Christian. Prayer, more than anything else we do, it expresses our complete and total dependence on God. Now, I mean, think about prayer. In the world's eyes, prayer seems a bit like insanity, right? I mean, if you're praying, you're talking to someone that you cannot see and who is not like physically or digitally present. And in, I mean, in the world's eyes, that's insanity. But prayer says, God, I trust you. I depend on you and I'm submitted to you. Prayer is a declaration of grateful dependence on God. There's a saying attributed to Martin Luther where he says, I have so much to do that if I didn't spend at least three hours a day in prayer, I would never get it all done. I have so much to do that if I didn't spend at least three hours a day in prayer, I would never get it all done. Now, is that your mentality? It's not my mentality. I don't respond to the pressures of life and all that I have to do by praying more. Or do you respond, like I often do, to all that you have to do by trying to do it all? So we, we try to do more. We get up earlier. We, we imagine, well, if there was only 26 hours in the day or whatever it is. We don't sleep. We don't eat. All kinds of things we do. But we do, 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 and do. And little time is left for prayer. That's what God calls us to, to pray. So in calling us to be self-controlled and sober-minded, Peter highlights the reality that, that prayer takes discipline. Again, Peter's just being super honest with us. It takes discipline. It doesn't come easily or naturally, but it's something that we work at. It takes self-control and a sober mind. Something we must train ourselves to do. Just like you once learned to walk or to talk or to ride a bike or to do any task at your job, you must train yourself to pray. Now, if you, you might be sitting here and feel like this is an impossible task or one that you have no idea where to begin or one that you've just faced constant failure. I want to remind you of two things. First, be encouraged that you're not alone in your struggle. In fact, Scripture assumes this struggle and gives us great hope because in Romans 8, 20, 8, 26, we read this. It says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. You feel too weak to pray? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. How awesome is that? So prayer is often hard, but if you are in Christ, the Spirit helps you in your weakness and intercedes for you and with you. 
What a, what a gift that is as we come to pray. Second thing I want to remind you of is that God gives us words to pray in Scripture. Now, I'd encourage you, if you don't know what to pray, if you're like, I don't even know where to begin, start with the Psalms and read a phrase or a verse and let that inform your prayer. And so I just flipped open to the Psalms and Psalm 119 verse 1 is what I came to. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So we can pray, Lord, help me to walk in your law. Thank you for your law. Thank you for your good words that give me direction on how to live. Help me to walk in it. Help my children to walk in your law. And go on from there. Go to the next verse. You don't know what to pray next? Just read the next verse. And there's a lot of verses to read. And then when you finish, start them over. You've got plenty to pray. And if you want more help with thinking through uh, what it looks like to pray the Bible, there's a great little book called Praying the Bible by a guy named Don Whitney. And uh, it's, it's a great little guide for, for one, encouraging prayer, but, but two, praying the Bible, praying through Scripture. The work of prayer is always worth it. Because there is a God overall who graciously hears our prayers. So our God tells us to pray and He answers our prayers. That's crazy. Now it may not be the answer we expect or when we want it, but His answers to prayer are always better than our answers without prayer. Every time. His answers to prayer are always better than our answers without prayer. So Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's the first answer Peter gives. We're going to spend a bit more time on the second answer. How do we live in light of the end of the world? He writes in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So our second answer is this, love. Love one another. And just like he qualified our disposition in prayer by saying it must be self-controlled and sober-minded, so he qualifies the disposition of our love. It must be earnest. Love one another earnestly. This is an intense love, a fervent love, a committed love. The word here implies that our love for others should grow in its depth and its width. And if you think about that, if something goes deeper and wider, it has to be stretched. It's going to go beyond what we might think is reasonable or even possible. To keep loving one another earnestly means that the people of God are committed to showing love to one another, even the people you don't really want to love. He explains this more in the next phrase. He says, we love, verse 8, since love covers a multitude of sins. Life in, I was about to say I'm going to be honest, but I've been honest the whole time, so I, I just skipped it. That's really good. Yeah, I'm glad I caught myself. Life in Christian community is a life of broken and sinful people coming together. And love acts as this glue that holds that people together. The church, this church, Grace Church, and every other church, is frictionful, not frictionless. What I mean by that is people rub each other the wrong way. People offend and take offense. And we, our church, are sitting in a room full of sinful people, who will disappoint and wrong each other. But when friction comes, when sin rears its ugliness on our relationships, our call isn't to pack our bags and go home, nor is it to react and give them what they deserve. 
When the end of all things is at hand, what does Peter say? He says, our call is to love. This is the same Peter who asked Jesus in his self-righteousness, how many times should I forgive my brother? And, And Peter is really seeking to stretch himself, going above and beyond what anyone would expect. So he throws in like seven times. Grab a little pat on the back. Seven times, Lord. But Jesus is not impressed by what Peter viewed as the abundant love that he was showing to those who had wronged him. Because the love that God shows us, the love that we're called to, shatters the stinginess of our love. So Jesus tells Peter, not seven times, no, not seven times, 70 times seven times. The relationships that we have in the church, they're going to tempt us. We will want to put a limit and a cap on the grace that we extend to others. But look to the love that God shows us. Paul writes that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's Romans 8.5. In this very letter, in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's no one who deserves the love of God less than us. Straying sheep. Sinful people. But He loves us. He gave Himself for us. And because of His love, we are to love others. So when your brother or sister sins against you, it's going to happen. It has happened. It will happen again. You have the opportunity to reflect this gospel love. This love that we've seen in Jesus Christ. Reflect that love to others. You have the opportunity to extend grace and mercy to others. You have the chance to bring really an otherworldly and supernatural grace to your relationship. I love this quote by author Bill Smith. He says this. He says, When others are good to me, there's no need for me to extend grace to them. Think about that. When others are good to me, there's no need to extend grace to them. They need grace from me only when they're out of line. That means the only context that anyone will ever have for experiencing grace from me The only context that anyone will ever have for experiencing grace from me is when he is in need of it. So if you want to be a gracious, grace-filled person, expect to be sinned against. Expect to be sinned against. Otherwise, there's no need for love to cover a multitude of sins. If you want to be a gracious person, expect to be sinned against. Otherwise, there's no need for love to cover a multitude of sins. Our expectation in the church should be to be sinned against. But our disposition in the church is to love one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter then goes on to describe two expressions of this love in community. We see the first in verse 9. He writes, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, it's a surprising response given our question if you think back to where we started. The question we're asking, how should I live in light of the end of the world? And if you go through the press release of all the things that they recommend, given that we're 100 seconds to midnight, none of them mention what Peter mentions here. Show hospitality. Have somebody over. Open up your home. Not what's in that press release. Now, in New Testament times, hospitality was critical to the continued growth of the church. 
It was a, it was a different time. It was a different world. We regularly hear of accounts of homes being opened up for Paul and for Peter and for Barnabas and others. There was no Airbnb. There were no hotels. There were no credit cards and reward programs. Their options were limited, and the alternatives, like sleeping on the street, were dangerous. So hospitality was a necessity for, for the welfare of the church. But just because our circumstances are different today doesn't make hospitality any less significant for us. These are still the last days, and this is still the Word of God. And a primary way we show love for one another is by showing hospitality through having people into our homes, by sharing meals with one another, by living life together. Biblical hospitality, the biblical practice of hospitality, is one way that we identify ourselves as being a part of God's family. So because we are the church, we are to love one another by extending hospitality to one another. Now look what Peter says should be the condition of this hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another if you're not too busy. No, wait, that's not what it says. If your house is big enough. Doesn't say that either. If you're a great cook. Nope. Oh, if your rooms are decorated right and you finally get that like one project done in your house. Show hospitality then. Not that either. Show hospitality to one another if you're really good friends in the same season of life, have kids around the same age or kids at all, or if you're married or if you're single. No, Peter doesn't say any of those things. Peter says the condition of our hospitality is to be without grumbling. Now, it's important to note that the only reason that he would need to say this is because the kind of hospitality he calls us to might be cause for grumbling. One commentator writes that this is a frank recognition that the practice of hospitality could become costly, burdensome, and irritating. I've experienced all of those opening up our home. It's costly, it's burdensome, and sometimes it's irritating. But that is not what Peter calls us to. Perhaps you open up your home and your guests, they eat too much. It's like, oh, I was going to eat that tomorrow, and now I, I'll just go hungry tomorrow. Or they leave a big mess. Or their kids break something you love. Or they scratch the table that you just spent the last two weeks refinishing. Now all these things, and many others, can be reasons for grumbling. But God's call to us is to love one another by being hospitable without grumbling. This grumbling is the opposite of cheerfulness. So he's calling us to joyful hospitality. A joyful opening of our homes. Because ultimately, hospitality is not about the stuff that we have the food that we eat, the season of our life. Hospitality is about the gospel and our hearts and our hope. Our hospitality isn't about a group of people getting together who share common interests. Our getting together isn't driven by eating the best food or having the most fun. Our hospitality reflects who we are as the family of God who have been made a family in Christ. Now the church is filled with those who were once far off, without hope in this world, but have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been brought from darkness to light. We were once dead in our sins. But God made us alive together with Christ. Amen. So this church, this church is made up of a diverse people who are lost, who are hurting, who are broken outside of Christ. But in Christ, we are a new family. In Christ, we have a new identity. And when we gather to eat together and we show hospitality, we put on display the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. So we love because He loved us. And this love shown in hospitality, it looks ahead. And that's why Peter's calling us 
to this at, at the end of all things. We are to show hospitality without grumbling because the end of all things is at hand. Because we're sojourners, getting ready for a greater and a better meal, show hospitality. Now just because hospitality is hard and inconvenient, or you're not wired for it, doesn't mean you don't show it. It just means you might have to prepare a little bit different to extend hospitality. So brothers and sisters, the encouragement is this. As Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show it with joy, with expectation, full of grace and mercy, without grumbling. Show hospitality because the end of all things is at hand. Rooted in love. Because of our expectation of that coming feast. Because we anticipate that day. So the end of all things is at hand. Love one another by showing joyful and generous hospitality. And I'm grateful that Grace Church is, is marked by this. But just because we're marked by this joyful, gracious, generous hospitality doesn't mean we can't still grow in it. I just want to encourage each of us to consider what God might be calling us to as we seek to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, staying on the same theme of loving one another, Peter goes further by calling the church to serve one another. So we love by showing hospitality, and we love by serving one another. He says this in verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So Peter's saying, the end of all things is at hand, so love one another by serving one another. I love where Peter starts this call in verse 10. As each has received a gift. Something that's easy to pass over. Maybe you just heard this call to show hospitality, and you feel like everything in your life from your house to your location to your health to your disposition makes hospitality next to impossible. And then Peter says, his next words, as each has received a gift. In other words, as a member of the household of God, you've been given a gift. You've been given something that was freely and graciously bestowed upon you, given to you. It's a gift. And receiving that gift means that you're here for the benefit of this body. You have an opportunity and a valuable part to play here. So because you have this gift, Peter says, use it to serve. Serve one another. God in His grace gives good gifts to His children so that they might serve one another. Now you may be wondering, what's my gift? Or where can I go to discover my gift? Or is there like a what colors your parachute book that I can read that will tell me what my gift is? Or strengths finder or an Enneagram that I can take to know my gift? Well, Peter doesn't help us with any of that because he wants to point us to our need to be good stewards of God's varied grace. That's what it says in verse 10. We have been entrusted with something as stewards, not for our own advantage, but for the good of others and for the glory of God. And what we've been entrusted with is an expression, and I love this phrase that Peter uses, of God's varied grace. God's varied grace. This is the same word that's used earlier in 1 Peter 1.6 when Peter... Talks, talks about being grieved by various trials. But God gives various and diverse gifts to the church in the face of various trials. In the church, He gives us a diversity of gifts to meet a diversity of needs. So the gifts we receive aren't ours, and they're not about us. We're just looking after them. And there's a way that we are to use them. We use them to serve others. 
Our gifts are not about making us look great. They're not to get people to see us and notice us. They're to love one another. Our gifts are to serve one another. One commentator says this, he says, the term serving can be used in a variety of ways. So it could be providing meals, visiting those in prison, providing financial support, and in more general terms as well. The point is that spiritual gifts are given to serve and to help others, to strengthen others in the face, in the faith. So that's why God gives us gift, gifts. Each one of us has a gift to strengthen others in the faith. We have a responsibility before God to use these gifts well. So then Peter, in verse 11, he's going to broadly break down gifts into two different categories. In verse 11, he gives us speaking gifts and serving gifts. Both are meant to serve, but I love how all-encompassing this is. We love others with our gifts through what we say and in what we do. This is, these are the gifts you can be looking for. What can I do to serve others? What can I say to serve others? For whoever speaks, we are to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. This is an odd-sounding phrase, the oracles of God. But it's not that complicated. As one who speaks the oracles of God, oracles of God, did I say oracles of God? Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> the oracles of God is as one who speaks the words of God. And thanks be to God that we can speak the oracles of God to one another because we have the words of God right here in this book. We love one another by echoing the word of God to one another. In this book, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, the words of God, and profitable. It's good for us, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word is good for us. God's Word is what we need. We don't need to wait around for something else. Some other oracles, some other words to love one another and serve one another. There isn't some other special revelation that we're called to speak to one another that's authoritative. God gives us what we need right here. In order to build one another up with our words, we want to be a, a Bible-bleeding people. I've called us to this before, but I want to do so again. When the circumstances of life and the friction of relationships come up against us, we want Bible to come out. And in order to do this, you've got to prioritize Bible intake. You've got to read the Bible and meditate on the Bible and study the Bible. Memorize the Bible. God's Word is the only Word that gives life. The only Word that's living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word is... There's this word that theologians use, it's efficacious, meaning it always has its intended effect. God's Word always gets done what He sets out to, it to get done. Never fails. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who, to refuge for, Jesus, to, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? So, brothers and sisters, let's speak God's Word to one another. Those who speak, speak the words of God. And those who serve, notice a theme coming out here, they serve in the strength of God. We speak, in the, we speak the words of God, we serve in the strength of God. We don't do what we do, love, serve, show hospitality in our own strength, but in the strength that God supplies. When we work in our own strength, we will run ourselves ragged. We will burn ourselves out. But when we use the strength that God supplies... When we draw from the well that will never run dry, 
God is the one that will get the glory. Because the focus isn't on us and what we're doing, but on the giver of the gifts, on the provider. And that's where Peter ends. That's what this is all about. This is how we are to live in these last days. See what he says in verse 11. So that in everything, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In everything. In how we think. In being self-controlled and sober-minded so that we can pray. In how we live as we love one another and forgive one another. Show hospital- showing hospitality to one another. In how we talk, speaking the words of God to one another. In how we walk in what we do, serving one another with God's strength. So when it's only 100 seconds to midnight... How should we live? How do we respond? Do we do all we can to turn back the hands on the clock? Is now the time to work to pull humanity back from the brink? Or do we respond by ignoring warning like this and live business as usual? Just do what you do. Keep doing what you've always done. No. Neither of those are the right answer. When the world says one thing, God calls us to another. We are called to live self-controlled and sober-minded, loving and forgiving one another, showing hospitality and serving one another, so that in everything, God might be glorified. So we pray and we love for the glory of God. This is the, the key to life and happiness, to eternal joy and peace. Not living for yourself, for your comfort, for your desires, for all the stuff you want, for all the places you want to go the things you want to do, the wrongs you want to see made right. True life, everlasting life, is found in living for the glory of Christ. Because there's no one more worthy to be praised. So in these last days, as we live in light of His grace, we wait for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So brothers and sisters, may we be zealous for good works because to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You pray with me. Oh Father, would You take Your Word and plant it deep in our hearts. May You root us in the reality of who You are and Your glory in the reality of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus in, in buying a people for your own possession. And may we live in the reality of who we are in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And may we be a church that is zealous for good works, zealous for your glory and your honor. We pray all these things for your glory. Amen. 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 Now in just a moment, we're going to share a meal together. This meal is the Lord's Supper. This meal is an expression of our shared trust in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and new life we receive through the death He died for us on the cross. Now, Throughout church history, this meal has often been called communion because in it we we commune with God and with one another. We're, We're pulling up a chair to the table and Jesus is there and we are there together. This meal is not meant for individual believers, but for the church because it reminds us of who we are as God's people and the shared participation we have in His body and blood. 
So accordingly, it expresses the unity that we share with one another. This meal strengthens and encourages us as we are reminded of the the present communion we share with Him and because we are united to Him with one another. We take this meal together because it expresses the shared trust in Jesus Christ. Through Christ's body broken and His blood shed, we have reconciliation with God and with one another. His death does much more than excuse us. It defines us. We are His people united to Him and to one another. Thanks be to God. So, brothers and sisters, as we join in this meal together, be reminded of who you are and the fellowship we can now enjoy with Christ and with one another. Enjoy the grace that comes from being united to Christ, counted among the covenant people of God, and and respond by living as you are, walking in His ways. Now, just a moment, the host team is going to come, and they're going to pass out the plates of bread and trays of juice. And we encourage every member of Grace Church and those who have expressed their faith in Jesus Christ by being baptized to please take one of each and hold on to them until we can all partake together. And if this is not you, if you, have not, if you are not a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, uh, we ask that you refrain from participating in this meal. We don't want you to feel awkward at all. We're grateful that you're here. Um, but to take this meal without genuine faith dishonors God because He has provided this meal to commune with His, commune with his people. So we are so glad you're here, and we want you to know that God invites you to enter into the joy and freedom and life that's found in Jesus. And if you'd like to talk about this, I would love to talk to you after the service. Larry would love to talk to you. Host team, you can come. I'm going to pray and uh, pass out the bread and cup. And then uh, as they pass that out, we'll be singing a song. You're welcome to join in on that. And we're done. We'll partake together, and we'll sing another song together. Father, thank you for uh, the gift of your Son, who was bloodied and bruised on the tree. His body was mutilated on our behalf. And more than that, He took on Your wrath for our sins. And because of His righteous life and sacrificial death, because He rose from the grave and ascended on high, we we can stand forgiven. We can stand free from the fear of death and judgment. And Lord, in response to this meal, may we live our lives for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.